Hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to the Limitless Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time with us today, welcome along. The Limitless Leadership Podcast is a conversation covering key youth ministry topics with top practitioners and thinkers. It's all about helping youth workers reflect on their practice and flourish as leaders. My name is Tim Alford, and I'm going to be your host for today's conversation with John Mark Comer from Bridgetown Church. Now, I've got a sneaking suspicion that we may have some church leaders, church pastors who've snuck in today to the Limitless Leadership Podcast to, to have a listen to John Mark Comer. And if you have, that's okay. You're welcome. You're welcome along. But while you're here, I just want to take a moment to say to you, your youth leader is amazing and i know that right now leading churches pastoring churches is super hard super challenging and so is youth ministry so i I just want to encourage you if you're a church leader or a pastor and you've snuck into our conversation today hey welcome but why not i know you can't give your youth leader a high five or a hug right now because of the whole social distancing situation but why not send them an email tell them how much you appreciate what they are doing hey what are we going to give our lives to that's more important than passing on the gospel to the next generation and so if you are a youth leader let me say to you again what you are doing is so important it's so important keep going now just before we jump into today's conversation with john mark coma let me tell you about limitless leaders on the 26th and 27th of january 2021 it is a two-day community of learning for youth and children's ministry leaders so so youth and children's ministry leaders from all churches are so welcome and we've got some fantastic contributors dr andrew root who's one of the primary voices across the world in youth ministry today will be with us uh, the reverend dr kate coleman as well Dave Adamson and Al Corsi from from North Point Church in Atlanta. Mike Pilovacci is going to be back with us, plus a bunch more. And because we really want to invest in your youth ministry, we're also going to be offering one-to-one consultancy sessions with a member of the Limitless Leadership team uh, to reflect on the specific issues that are impacting you in, in, in children's ministry or in youth ministry right now so if you'd like to come along you'd be so welcome i'd love to learn from you it's going to be really interactive you can put your questions to to all of these thinkers and and practitioners that will be joining us as well head to limitlesselim.co.uk forward slash leaders you can download the program check out all the themes and get your tickets for that right there limitlesselim.co.uk forward slash leaders now, let's get into this. It's so good to have John Mark Comer with us today. John Mark uh, is, is the author of six books, including his, his most recent, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is just fantastic. I'm sure that many of you will have read it. And if you haven't, I can highly recommend it to you. He's a dad, a husband. He's living in Portland over in the USA, pastoring Bridgetown Church. And, and we have a conversation about just such an important topic today and it is digital freedom for a digital generation in a digital world so that's enough from me let's get into this podcast hi john mark hey happy to see you happy to be along yeah thanks so much for joining us today i know that our leaders are really gonna enjoy this session john mark before we get into it tell us a little bit about about yourself about 
your family, about life in Portland? Yeah, Portland, Oregon. We're up in the Pacific Northwest of America, so go to California and then just go north until the weather gets really bad and the coffee gets really good. And that's where, so we share a, 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 a quasi-similar miserable climate to you in the UK. And it's beautiful in the summer right now. It's September, so it's just beautiful. Been here, uh, we church planted 17 years ago. So been here and on the ground for a while. Um, yeah, my lovely wife, T and I have three children. Our oldest, I guess this pertains to our conversation, is about to enter high school. So he starts in a couple of days, he starts what we would call high school. So yeah. ninth grade. Um, so secondary school, in the UK. secondary school, got it. Yes. So uh, yeah, he's heading into that, which has been a fascinating journey for us through the kind of education system in America, and then we have two 11-year-olds, one uh, via adoption, so multiracial family and teenage kids and entering into all the things in a hyper-secular, uh, progressive, urban kind of cultural context in our city, so really fascinating place to raise children in the way of Jesus. You know, I was driving in this morning to our church offices. We have morning worship right now at 8 a.m. And uh, my son, I was with my 14-year-old son in the car. We were talking about the idea of how followers of Jesus are, uh, we were reading Matthew on the way in, we are talking about how followers of Jesus are a cognitive minority. We're not an ethnic minority, as I'm not as a white man, but we're what sociologists call cognitive minority, meaning our worldview is sharply at odds with that of our host culture. The way we think about marriage and sexuality and money and life and the meaning of life and the telos of a human person is, is very different from our host culture. And he's like, that's kind of cool, Dad. We're, we're a cognitive minority. You know what I mean? So we're just trying to raise children in this environment where he has a 14-year-old boy who is a disciple of Jesus and Orthodox historic faith. Like, he, he does not have a lot of peers in the city, you know? And so him growing up in a city like ours, it's a fascinating experience. Yeah, and I guess uh, your context in a, in a city like Portland would be similar uh, to a lot of the context in the UK. Yes, which is, exactly. I guess more secular than America. Yeah, mm -hmm. more Christian than, than a lot yep. of a lot of the states. So, uh, yep. we'll be sharing a similar experience to you. Uh, our, our youth and children's workers watching. Uh, no doubt. Well, um, I, I want to get straight into it, uh, John Mark. No messing around. Um, Great. Because um, I, I've heard you say something, John Mark, and I'm going to be honest, I didn't agree. In fact, <laughs> I would go as far to say as um, it hurt my feelings. Okay. <laughs> what you said, John Mark, is, the, is, is this. And I believe, I believe this is a quote. You said, the Empire Strikes Back was the last good Star Wars movie. <laughs> Explain uh, yourself. Explain yourself, John Mark. Oh, did I really? Well, that's kind of true. You know, it's kind of true. So my theory is, you know, Star Wars started out as an indie art house film. Like the original one, we don't think of it that way because of what it's become. But it was, I mean, it won the award for, you know, the Oscar for design for that year or whatever. Empire Strikes Back is dark and brooding. And then, you know, the cynical interpretation is basically that a mutant version of capitalism corrupted Star Wars from the inside <laughs> out. You know, now we're at the point, because they realize they can make money off of toys, enter the Ewoks. And I actually like Return of the Jedi, but you can make a strong argument that the original plot, Luke was supposed to turn evil, and they just started turning it into 
merchandising. And you know, now the cynical interpretation is Star Wars makes 75% of their profits off merchandising. So the movies have basically become commercials for Target toys for little children. But the genius and, of George Lucas, John Mark, surely was that he had the foresight when he first made the deal to say he would take all the profits from toy sales from Kenner, even in that first movie, even in A New Hope before it was called. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say something to you now, John Mark, and it, and it may make you just click out. This may be the end of the conversation. <laughs> this is the end of our relationship. Yeah, but I want, I want you to know it. I, I, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I want the world to know it. I like the prequels. Yeah, I, I you know, after after the the recent trilogy, the prequels don't look so bad. Okay, so are you more prequel than prequel trilogy than sequel trilogy? If you had to go, well, the prequels part of for me, Star Wars is an aesthetic as much as it is. It's an aesthetic and it's a mythology before it's anything else. And the prequels aesthetic is horrific. It's I have no idea what happened to the creators between Return of the Jedi and episode one. I have no idea what happened. Lots of, lots of holidays in Italy or something, but, um, but the mythology is there in place. Like this, yeah. it's still Star Wars. It's about, I mean, Star Wars is really about fathers and sons. If you read, um, there's that book, the world according to Star Wars by the behavioral economics. Um, I have not, I have not. Oh, it's fantastic. And he's a behavioral economics, uh, professor, he's the author of that famous book Nudge, and he's written this book on the philosophy of Star Wars, and he basically writes about how all of Star Wars is about the the ache for a father. Yeah, but then you get that you get that with uh, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the sequel trilogy, you get the whole uh, Ray yes. thing coming back in at the. I mean, I know it. I know it was shoehorned in at the end. I know it wasn't the plan. Anyway, we've got to stop. We've got to stop because people haven't come to hear. Yes, that's not what we're, not what we're here for. Yes. So look, let me let me. I have two boys, and they get mad at me. We had this conversation last night. One of my sons is like consummate like artist hours every day working on his art and since he's been a little child he's been determined i will become a film director so he's our like film critic cinephile and he thinks the new star wars are just garbage and loves the old ones and then my other son my older one is just like happy go lucky loves the world and gets mad anytime we start to critique star wars like dad it's great what are you talking about so it's our our family itself is divided you know well maybe a conversation for another day um, yes. We're here, in actual fact, to talk about digital freedom for a digital generation in a digital age. Uh, there was a recent study, John Mark, that was uh, published by Adobe, okay. which showed that young people in the UK are spending an average of 10 and a half hours consuming media every Unbelievable. single day. And that was probably pre-COVID, I would imagine. Pre-COVID. And so if anything, it's gone up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because all the, everybody's school education work. and yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I had a conversation with one of our young people uh, here in Malvern uh, just shortly before lockdown, and and somehow that the the conversation got onto screen time. I'm not sure how we got there, but we ended up doing a few sums uh, with her screen time uh, based on her average screen time over the last week, and we worked out that if she lived to 80 years old and continued to use her phone like she'd been using it in the last week, then she would have spent 25 years of her life. Oh, my her gosh. Family. Oh, my gosh. Not, not including time on, on, on Netflix or, or on her iPad or any other device. 
Oh my gosh. Just your phone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, And that was less screen time than that Adobe survey said was the average. So, so we're, wow. so we're talking about something, uh, really significant. Uh, yes. area, uh, uh, and and so widespread and and i guess just normal in that sense yes, um, yes. so my question is what do you think are some of the dangers that are associated with this um constant stream of of stimulation and information coming from this you know almost ceaseless consumption of of media for young people well, yeah. And how much time do you have? You know, I don't want to start off with the dour thing. You know, I think at just a very basic level, I think that neuroscience and the library of scripture would agree and harmonize on the claim that what you give your attention to is the person you become. Yeah. There's a Hong Kong writer I love who put it this way. She said, you are what you contemplate. Mm. Meaning you become what you think about and give your attention and your mental focus to on a regular basis, you know, which is why Paul writes in Romans 12, that famous passage in the New Testament, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There was ever a scripture that Gen Z, as you would say, and Gen Alpha need, you know, all of us need, you know, more than ever. It's that right now. And one of the best possible ways to be conformed to the pattern of this world is to spend 10 hours a day consuming its digital content. And so the information, you know, we can talk more about this later. And this is not news. This is, you know, this these companies that are both creating this content and then more than anything delivering the content are designed for addiction and manipulation to shape you and they're designed with spiritual formation in mind not christian spiritual formation but spiritual formation they want to manipulate you to vote a certain way think a certain way spend money a certain way act a certain way express your sexuality a certain way your identity a certain way you know why are corporations so invested in some left-wing ideologies around identity right now because if you don't have an identity that comes from god or your gender or your ethnic group, then they can sell you an identity and they can make money off of you. It's a cynical interpretation, but I think it's legitimate. And so, um, you know, the information that's coming to us, not all of it is bad. Some of it's great. Um, But even the great stuff is often brought to us in such a way that's designed to addict us and move us to hyper-digital dependency. But much of the content is sharply at odds with the worldview of Jesus. And so all that to say, you know, you know, Barna released a similar study to the one you're saying, and they compared, if you saw that kind of church in exile kind of, you know, um, study they did of millennials, this was of millennials in 26 different countries. And so millennials, the numbers aren't as high as 10 hours a day, but they're still really high. And they just had some great graphics where they, I couldn't give you the exact quote, we'd have to Google it, but, you know, here's how many hours a day millennials spend consuming digital content, and then here's how many minutes a day they consume spiritual content, whether that be scripture or a Christian podcast. And when you just see the two, you have like this tiny little box for like 
basically Christian content and spiritual content, you know, and then this huge one that's everything else. Mm. And you just realize this is not going to defeat this, you know what I mean? And so um, you are what you contemplate. You you become what you give your attention to on a regular basis. Yeah, and you will become like so. If, if if what you're giving your attention to is hypersexualized and full of outrage and no nuance and ideologically driven and hyper secular, and you're going to become that kind of a person. Yeah, yeah. Because I I guess also what you give your attention to is also what you give authority to whether knowingly or not it, it's it because as you've said it, it begins to to shape you it begins to shape yes. your worldview and in that sense it has authority over you because it's shaping yes. who you are becoming yes absolutely 100 percent. so 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 with that in mind john mark do you do you think it's important then for for youth and, and children's workers those watching to be engaged in that online world and actually providing content online that is that is more wholesome, that is leading people in the way of Jesus, that is leading people to, to Jesus, that is kingdom principled. Or, because I, I really feel this tension where it's like, well, this is where young people are, and so, you know, if we want to be incarnational like Jesus, we want to be there, and actually, if they're going to be watching something on YouTube, better that they're watching, you know, what we're producing as a youth ministry or children's ministry than you know, this YouTuber or that YouTuber. But at the same time, are we just kind of advocating these really addictive behaviours that are consuming their lives and consuming their time? So uh, how do you feel like we, we as youth and children's workers can navigate that, that tension, John Mark? Yeah. Well, first off, I just think it's, I'm just happy that you're asking the question. And that really is the question. And honestly, I'm still asking that question. So I don't have a firmed up, strong opinion on an answer yet. Because the question you're basically asking is, at what level do we participate in systems of evil in order to do good? <laughs> you know, and so do you, you know, let's take social, let's take, and online is too broad of a category because there's much about online that is not, you know, designed for and conducive to addiction or, you know, so you take a medium like a podcast, that's a profoundly different medium than Instagram, you know, which is still, you know, profoundly different than Twitter. And so, you know, you have to kind of piece apart, obviously social media is kind of the worst aggressor and everything and I would include YouTube as social media and then you know the best would be something like a podcast which is long form which is hard to take out of context you can't you know dice it up in bits and pieces and so it's just designed for it's a different medium you know or a website is still a different medium you know so I think you have to online you have to kind of partner out what you're really talking about and most of the problems are connected to social media I think you know there other there's other problematic technologies but mostly we're talking about Instagram Twitter TikTok YouTube like this this is the main crux of the problem and so that's really the question is like you know, if Jesus were me, I'm, I'm literally, I haven't been on social media in three months. Um, the political unrest in America right now is off the charts and it's social media is just like gas on the fire. So I've just felt led to take three months off and just be quiet, you know, and I'm seriously considering going, going off altogether. I haven't decided yet. Um, you know, I'm rereading Jared Lanier's book. He was in uh, Silicon Valley kind of OGs oh, older now, but started out, he kind of sort of invented VR. His company brought it to market for the first time forever ago and he's become a writer and, and philosopher 
and it's kind of an insider critic of Silicon Valley. And I'm rereading his last book right now, which I read a year ago and thought it was compelling, but stayed on social media. And it, I think the title is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And he goes through 10 cogent, well-thought-out, articulate arguments. Not one problem with it. Like, he lists 10, you know, one of which is it's making politics impossible. And he makes a really strong case how you can't have a democratic society in a world with social media, you know, or it's incredibly hard. And at least in my country, we're really seeing that. So yeah, all that to say, yes, an echo chamber, and it just drives up outrage. And, you know, something like politics is a great example. To, to have a healthy political body requires in-depth thoughtful, hyper-nuanced conversation that's not driven by ideology, but is driven by practical data, what works, what doesn't work, in a spirit of mutual cooperation, compromise, and respect. Obviously, that's not social media. You know what I mean? It's the opposite of everything that I just said. So what happens when you have a whole generation that doesn't even have the capacity to pay attention or the emotional posture to treat people that they disagree with, with respect, with nuance, to ask questions, to listen, to, to let set aside ideology and really talk about the complexity and the ambiguity of the human condition and what it takes to run something like a nation state, you know, that's multi-ethnic and multi-generational. You know what I mean? This is complex that you don't hashtag your way into a better future you know so all that to say the question is really you know do do we just do we lead young people by leading a mass exodus off the internet into real life and off social media in particular or do we stay inside social media and attempt to subvert the way it's normally done and live totally different on it and almost use it but the, the hard part is you're, you're attempting to use technology in the opposite way to what it's designed for it's designed for addiction and outrage and bad non-nuanced thinking and anxiety and fear-mongering. Yeah. So you're trying to use something that's literally designed for that to bring love and peace and truth and complex conversation and emotional wholeness, spiritual life to people. So so that's really the open-ended question. And I, I think you can make a strong case for either right now. Yeah. You know, yeah, you could, you could. But I, yeah, I could keep talking about it. Yeah, well, but because, like, especially in this season, our youth and children's ministries, especially in the early stages of lockdown here in the UK, where there was no way you could see anybody, our only option was connecting, you know, through Zoom, through Instagram, yes. through YouTube. But again, obviously, Zoom is a profoundly different medium than Twitter. Yeah, but young people really don't like Zoom because they feel too vulnerable looking back at themselves. Yes, they, I, they've been much better. Does anybody like Zoom? Have we all decided it's the worst thing ever? <laughs> but, but this is why we've seen, I guess, uh, it's been really interesting that we have seen a gradual decline in young people engaging online. Yes. Even though, and I never would have seen that coming at the start. At the start of this whole thing, I was like, "Yeah, youth ministry, yeah, young people, they're online all the time. This, it's like ducks to water. This is going to be fine." But it's not been the case. And mm, interesting, and I, I, I didn't know that. You're saying their engagement is, is has been lower with church specifically. You're saying, yeah, with yeah. So in and that's been true. That there are exceptions to every rule, of course, John Mark. But it's been right. across denominations and across demographics that there's been a gradual wow. young people engaging online. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is that 
like we went online i guess kind of because we had to and that was the only way we could stay connected but what what i didn't think about at least and i think what we as a, a youth and children's ministry community didn't think about was that in doing that we were putting ourselves in direct competition yes countless other notifications yeah. and applications that are screaming for the attention of our young people no uh, way at, you can't win you can't win that war you can't win you will not win that game yeah and so i i just think like you know i've heard a, i've heard a few i don't know if you are going to agree or disagree with this but i've heard a few people say over this period of time in lockdown oh yeah that you know the future is online and i've just been thinking the future no i no i think if yeah and if they're referring to the church i my i've long been a quiet critic and rebel against the movement of church toward an online digital disembodied space yeah um, you know even from early on from the video venue movement in america all the way up to the social media kind of stuff so um yeah i i think the opposite i think that COVID has just deepened my conviction that the future of the church is not online. Yeah, I'm that the future of the church is embodied, smaller, hyper relational communities. Yeah, ra radical communities, and and I think for for youth ministry, I think we need to be looking at actually what does it look like to be raising up spiritual parents mm -hmm. who can like invest not an hour a week but invest life in discipling in discipling yes exactly that and the other because like you know the world can better our online videos the the, the world can better our online content yep. but there's no there's no substitute in 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 the world and you know what i mean by that phrase there's no substitute for that kind of radical diverse loving community there's yes. there's no substitute substitute for the supernatural power of the holy spirit at work and signs and wonders in the world there's no substitute for that and that's what we have as and so i'm really yes. encouraging youth workers you know children's workers to go after that stuff don't don't spend as much don't, time uh, yes the algorithm exactly and and end up doing a bad version of what they can get on netflix or whatever you know yeah i mean there are certain things that the online medium is great for it's great for content delivery you know as long as it's broad content that doesn't have to be hyper specialized it's horrific for relationships i think you know, so, you know, there's certain things that you can do in an online space. Great. I mean, right. COVID's the exception to the rule because of where we're at. But, um, you know, there are other things that just, man, are just best done. We're in, human beings are embodied creatures. We're not algorithms. We're not bits. We're humans. We have bodies. We have arms and legs and brains and sweat glands. And we're designed to be with other people in relationship, you know? Mm. Yeah. So I think, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever ministry you have in the digital space has to be intentionally trying to subvert the very space that it's ministering into. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like we're working right now with our youth group on developing a rule of life, a digital rule of life for basically students at our church. You know what I mean? We're like students that are in our middle school group or high school group. There's like there's this digital rule of life, you know what I mean, that we're trying to live into as a community. It's not coercive. You, the kids decide if they want to be in it or not. And for yeah. kids like mine, whose parents don't let them do hardly anything, it's a non-option, you know what I mean? But um, but I think if you're going to be in that space, you have to be intentionally trying to subvert that space. Because, you know, this is the great temptation, especially for churches that care about evangelism. You know, as a, the, the great temptation is to think that the end justifies the means. 
you know, like, and oh, the end of we want to see people come to faith, we want to see the gospel get out there or whatever, justifies basically com compromise and complicity. And every evangelistic movement that has bought into that philosophy has always been short-lived and hollowed itself out because people come to faith, but they don't actually come to faith in Jesus as Lord. They don't, you know, come to faith yeah. in such a way that they become disciples of Jesus. Yeah. And so the whole thing just becomes this ephemeral, nominal kind of non-sustainable movement, you know? So the great temptation, you know, for leaders is the end justifies the means. And it doesn't means matter a lot. Yeah. How we do ministry matters just as much as what we actually do. Yeah. I think yeah, that's 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 really powerful. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, John Mark, your your kids there, um, and I know that um, you've said to your kids, you're not going to have a smart, you're not going to own a smartphone into into your 18. Is that am I am I right with that? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that even when you're 18, you know, it'll be on I mean, to buy it. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. question, I guess, my question is like. Yeah, what's your thinking behind that? What, why have you gone for that? And it, would that be your hope for young people? If you were, a, if you were a youth pastor working directly with young people, if you were a children's pastor, is that is that what you'd be encouraging your young people to do? Just to, you know, totally disconnect from all, all socials, not have a smartphone. Is, is that is that if you were president of the world? If I was president, you mean totalitarian dictator of the world? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. Well, first off, my oldest son is 14. So right now I'm just, yes, what I've told my kids is they don't get anything until at 16 they can get a flip phone. Okay. And at 18 they can get a smartphone. And at the end of their senior year in high school, they can get social media for three months before they go to college with my tutelage. And then at that point, they're kind of, you know, off to the races. Now, whether or not I can hold to that, we'll see. You know, right now it's been honestly been a non-issue, my 14-year-old, because I've told him that his whole life. You know, he's that's all he knows, you know? And so it has honestly been a non-issue. I can already tell that our 11-year-old daughter is going to be the one who's pushing me the hardest for social media, not surprising, you know? But my logic there is, you know, I think that a smartphone in general and social media in particular are, I treat them the way I would treat a gun or a knife or um, like, it's a weapon. It's powerful. It can be, you don't give knives to three-year-olds. Um, I do not think you should give the internet. And I think the worst possible thing you could do for a teenager is put the internet in their pocket. I read a fascinating study, secular study, not remotely Christian, not remotely from a conservative perspective from the University of Virginia on aggression in men and women. And it basically said it's a total myth that men are more aggressive than women. It said that men and women are equally aggressive, but men and women tend to display aggression in different ways. Boys tend to display aggression in acts of physical violence or direct confrontation, and women tend to display aggression, and I forget the exact language they use, but something to do with like subtle boundary shifting of like, you know, exclusion, who's in, who's out, kind of subtle relational clues. And then they said that the, the I was reading a, re a summary by an atheist on this. And he basically said, if you wanted to destroy an entire generation of adolescent boys, you'd put a handgun in their front right pocket. And if you wanted to destroy an entire generation of adolescent girls, you'd put Instagram in their front right pocket. Oh, gosh. Wow. 
So, I mean, this is power. I think we need to treat these things as powerful. I mean, the, the, the rise, if, if all we had to talk about was pornography, that would be a reason enough yeah. for me to not let my children have a smartphone. And pornography is just one of many things, digital addiction, secular ideology, you know, alternate kind of conspiracy theories, fake news, lack of truth. I mean, secular messaging. I mean, there's so much, you know, that is that that port, that phone is a portal to um, to information without context, without spiritual authority, and often without truth. So, I think for my kids, I need to kind of mentor them and train them up in how to live in a digital age. Whether or not they choose to be on social media will be their decision when they're that age, you know. But that's our kind of firm conviction. We don't have a TV in our house. We have very strict limits around internet usage and you know where you can do it. None of our kids have computers, and our kids are happy. They are smart. They are all brilliant readers and artists, and you know what I mean. Like they're filling up their time in beautiful ways. And I think actually it's key for parents. You know, Cal Newport in his book Deep Work makes the point that because of digital addiction and technologization, and you know, so many uh, old professions being automated, the need for future careers is going to be people that have the capacity for what he calls deep work, the ability to do kind of four, six-hour blocks, completely uninterrupted, no distraction where they become masters of some kind of a skill. And that need is rising as the number of people who actually have the capacity to do that is plummeting. So one of the best gifts that parents can give their kids is let them have a boring childhood so they grow up to be creative, smart, thoughtful people with the capacity to pay attention for long periods of time. They will just, they will crush it in their careers if they have this capacity that's going to become like dinosaurs, like increasingly rare for an entire digital generation. So it might sound harsh, but I actually think I'm setting my kids up really for success. And they're very socially involved. These kids aren't isolated, you know, kind of hidden away at home. They're they're super socially involved. They're just not digitally involved. And yeah. so, you know, if I were if I were dictator of the world, I would make Silicon Valley change its business model, um, you know, around social media from an aver- free advertising model to a subscription model, which would significantly change. Uh, how people interact with it. And uh, I would make it illegal, just like alcohol is illegal, just like you can't get a driver's license until you're 16, you can't get a gun until you're whatever in America, you can't get, you know, um, you can't drink alcohol until you're 21. I would make a smartphone or something like that illegal till at least 18 years of age, and you'd never be able to police it. So this is a good thing I'm not a totalitarian dictator. <laughs> if I was a youth pastor, yeah, what I would do, or a children's pastor, is I would on a regular basis, basis meet with the parents and the kids in my in my community I would lay out a biblical theological and cultural case for um, a non-digital discipleship to Jesus and I would give I would have a digital rule of life that our church and our youth group and our children were living into that was specific to our church and our context and our values I'd come up with that I'd invite them into it and I would strongly encourage the parents to not let their kids have smartphones until a certain age while fully respecting the parents' decision. Sometimes parents just need to be told that you don't have to do this. I remember, you know, when, a couple of years ago when we were, our kids were getting old enough where all of their friends were starting to get phones. I remember Jude was, you know, going off on the bus for his first day at middle school, which would be grade six here, and he's on a bus of 35 people, you know, 12, 13 years old. He was the only kid on the whole bus that didn't have a smartphone.
smartphone with full access to the internet. Yeah. And um, I remember just sitting with him and like, am, am I crazy? Like, are we just oppressing our children? And then I remember talking to one, his best friend's family, this family that we're really good friends with in our neighborhood, about 10 years old than us. They are lovely people, very secular, not followers of Jesus, but hyper successful, you know, daughter went to Stanford on a full ride scholarship, like very upper, you know, class, like very sharp, very successful, very intelligent people. And I remember hearing that they don't let their children have any social media until 18. And these are very secular, progressive, wonderful people. These are not Christians. And I thought, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're like, this is one of the best families I know. These are not conservative religious Christians. These are liberal, secular, you know, sophisticated people. And they're saying absolutely no social media until you're 18 and no smartphone until you're, I think it was 16 or 17 or something like that. And I thought, oh, wow, I can do that. I'm, this isn't me damaging my children. This is me loving my children. Yep. So I think parents need to be given, that might sound weird, but that permission because there's an overwhelming cultural pressure to let your kids spend 10 hours a day online or have a smartphone and let your 10-year-old girl have Instagram. You are their parent. You are responsible before God to raise them into the way of Jesus. We will stand before God and give an account. So I think sometimes parents just need to be given that blessing, blessing and permission. Yeah, so good. So good. You, you touched there, uh, John Mark, on digital addiction. And I wonder if we could just wade in on that subject sure. specifically a little bit. One of the things that you, you wrote in, in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry was this, that uh, psychologists make the point that the vast majority of Americans' relationship to their phones, I'm pretty sure we could say Brits, uh, yes, I'm sure. yeah. falls at least under the category of compulsion. We have to check that last text, click on Instagram, open that email, etc. But most of us are past that to full-on addiction. Can, yes. can you describe some of the signs of digital addiction and I guess I guess on the first hand how we might recognize that and combat that in our own lives as leaders but how can also we help children young people to recognize that in their lives and how how can we help them to find freedom from digital addiction yeah. Well, lots, I mean, lots of great questions in there. I mean, the, you know, the questions about compulsion and addiction would be best asked of a neuroscientist, you know, not a pastor. But let me give you a non-scientific, academic, just very down-to-earth you know, examples last exercise. One thing I've been trying to do is uh, called text messaging bundle, text message bundling. So I've been trying to just do all of my text messages twice a day at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. And kind of, and, and then other than that, just use text messages for like, you know, I'm running 10 minutes late or, you know, if you need something for work or whatever, but basically twice a day to sit down, answer all of my text messages, because, you know, the more you text message, the more you text message and the same principle applies to email, you know, which is why you get back from vacation and you think email is going to take you four hours and it takes you like 40 minutes, you know, because most of this stuff got solved out and just the more you ping back on each other, the more you fill up your box and so on and so forth. So, um, all all that to say, try that. Just try tomorrow morning, wake up, try to not look at or answer or send a single text message till 11 a.m., then do all of them, and then try to do it again at 5, and if you want, maybe once right before you go to bed at 8.30 or something like that before you put your phone away, and just see how hard that is to do. 
I cannot even express how hard it is to have my phone sitting. It's 10.14 in the morning on Pacific Standard Time. My phone is right here to the right of me. And I cannot tell you how hard it is that I have not checked my text messages today. How hard it is not to look at it. Did I get anything new? Do I need to send one? Do I want to send that one? Ooh, I have this thought, you know? It is, I literally feel in my body, this like my body almost wants to like lean toward my, like this itch that like I have to scratch in my brain to pick it up and text it and get that dopamine hit, you know? So that is a non-scientific, non-academic, do that tomorrow and you will be shocked by just what you feel, anxiety, restlessness, desire, compulsion, and then shockingly, most, many people can't even do it. And so then what does that tell me about myself? You know, myself included, what does that tell me about myself that I attempt to text message bundle and a lot of the time I can't? What does that tell me about myself? You know, so. But John, I I know you've got more to say on this, but but just to that point, uh, a a little story that happened to to me recently in in our youth ministry. Uh, It was Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK. And so we were talking about mental health. And uh, we have these kind of little crews where in my crew, I've just got like two young people. And the way we we were doing youth ministry was we were doing a Zoom uh, with some games. And then we were doing an Instagram live, which was like a a testimony slot. Uh, And then after that, we were going on to, so we had two leaders, two young people in these little crews just on chats. And it was Mental Health Awareness Week. So we were talking about, you know, what are some of the things that impact your health, uh, mental health positively? And then I said, okay, well, what are some of the things that, impact your mental health negatively like without i mean it couldn't have been more than two or three seconds when both of them replied social media just came straight into the message both of them wow yeah the thing that the first thing they thought of that impacts their mental health negatively but then i said to them okay so so you kind of recognize that that's like something that's not helping you both of them have struggled with anxiety so i said to them if if someone was to you know, on that basis, encourage you just to take one week off of your social media feeds, of your, off your channels, would you be able to do it? And both of them said, no way. Yeah. No, there's just no way we could do it. And so there's... So they're aware that it's harming their mental health and they can't stop. Yeah, because it's addiction, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the exact way people feel about heroin or cocaine or alcohol. Yeah, and of course, you know... They love it, and they know it's ruining their life, but they can't stop it. Yeah, yeah, and of course what the studies show is that whilst the substance isn't there, in terms of what's happening neurologically, it's the same it's the same thing that's happening, isn't it? It's that same sense of, uh, 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 of uh, addiction that's going on to our, to our phones. And, and like you mentioned earlier, the dopamine hits that are going on and, and the, the feedback loop and all that kind of stuff. So, so what do we do about that? Because I, that really broke my heart, you know? Yeah. How can, cause you mentioned about the, the, the text message bundling. It's, it's the same principles, I guess, for social media. Yeah. How can we even worse with our yeah even worse with our children with our young people when they can they can see it they can recognise this isn't really good for me and yet they can't break free from it. What would you, what would be your recommendation? Like where do we start practically? How do we get alongside our our young people and yeah. help them to find freedom from that addiction? Well, honestly, I think we need to start just naming it as what it is. It's an addiction, yeah. and then you need to start treating it the way that you treat addiction. You know what I mean? Wow. So you go to AA, you don't just like I'll try to drink less alcohol this week. Yeah. 
that that's not how you deal with addiction. You don't just like try to use your willpower and good intentions to do the same thing, but a little bit less, you know? So I think bare minimum, you know, Cal Newport in his book, Digital Minimalism, you know, has an explanation, makes a strong case for what he calls a digital detox, that basically you need to take 31 days of complete, total di digital detox, absolutely nothing at all, other than what he says, what would get you fired from your job. So for most adults, that's like some version of email, maybe for students, they might have to do, you know, Google Drive or something, Google Classroom or something like that, but basically complete, total digital detox for 31 days is the minimum that your brain needs to even stand a chance at rewiring itself away from the addiction. So I think something like that would be good to do on an annual basis. You know, like I know um, some people I really respect have a healthy relationship with alcohol will always take a month off every year and not drink at all for a month just to make sure that they keep that relationship healthy. Mm. I think we could apply that same wisdom principle to digital stuff. I think it'd be great if every single person took a month off of, you know, Instagram or social media for sure. And really more than that, you know, so I take every summer, I take three weeks completely away from my phone, like, uh, like nothing, no text messaging, no email. Like my phone is literally off and in a box for 21 days straight but, but john mark i've got to stop you there what how do you live without google maps <laughs> I, I don't travel much in those days okay, okay. That's, true. that's true oh my gosh and then you, you go old school i have gone where you actually like use my computer to pull it up and then print out the directions amazing. like amazing or like people used to back in the day of the 90s or whatever you know have you got an auto so, survey map Job. I, <laughs> you just see me in my car, like legit have a map spread out on the dashboard, like trying to get somewhere lost, stopping to ask people for directions, like yeah, the ancient. Imagine it, imagine it. Imagine it. It turns out people navigated the world before they had smartphones. Yeah. Okay. And much of the world still does. So all that, my, my point I'm just making is you have to start with honesty that this is a form of addiction. And if you can't get there, you're not gonna get anywhere. And nobody overcomes addiction by willpower and good intentions. Well, nobody does. Yeah. You, oh, I mean, overcoming addiction, addiction is really hard to do. And you do it in community, you do it with radical sobriety. So we need to start, you know, sobriety and, you know, in AA and in the Christian tradition is way more than just, I'm not getting drunk every night off vodka. It's a whole like way of life. There's a theology of sobriety all the way through the library of scripture. So we need to apply that theology of sobriety to our relationship with our phones and the internet and social media and so on and so forth. And this is where leaders have to lead by example. You know what I mean? You have to wonder if Paul was writing 1 Timothy 3 now and his list of qualifications for an elder, would he list not angry on social media, not addicted to their phone, not consuming hours of content each day and wasting their life? You know what I mean? Like, would he have to add these things? Like, this is one of the most important things. This is one of the greatest dangers to our generation, you know what I mean? What, if, if prayer, as a Catholic theologian who defined prayer as a long loving look at the real, hmm. if prayer is a long loving look at the real, what does that say about an entire generation if we don't have the capacity to look at anything long at all? 
unless if it's bright and shiny and making constant movement, you know? So if we lose our capacity to pay attention, how can we even have a relationship with God, much less become people who are like Jesus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's... So I probably sound pretty harbinger of doom, but I, no, I, I mean, it's... the stakes are high. And I think the, the best hope we have right now is parents. And the next best we hope we have is, is, is youth and children's workers in the church because the world has a vested interest. Money and politics are now based on digital addiction. Yeah. So the entire entertainment industry, all of the technology, you know, kind of Silicon Valley industry or most of it, and politics all have a vested interest in us being addicted to social media, addicted to our phones, because they can manipulate us that way and they can shape us to be the kind of voters and consumers that they want. And so the church is one of the few places where, man, we don't. We don't need that to do our work. It's a it's a challenge, if anything. It's definitely not a boon, you know? So we can be a place where we actively work against that gravitational pull of the digital age. And maybe we're still in a, in a Paul, the way that Paul was subverting the Roman Empire by using its roads and its legal system and claiming citizenship. Maybe we're on social media and YouTube and we're, and we're subverting it from the inside out, or maybe not. Or maybe we only do mediums like podcasts and stuff like that. I don't know. That's an open question in my mind. But either way, I think we can be subverting the gravitational pull of, you know, what Barna called digital Babylon, which is really the world that we're all living in now, this digital Babylon, through embodied, real, attention-based experiences of loving community and quiet prayer. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm challenged uh, and inspired by what you're saying, John Mark, and what I, uh, what I can't help but think as, as you've alluded to is you know it, it, it starts with me it starts with us as the yes. because we we can't lead others in, until we first lead ourselves yeah mm-hmm. and, and we can't ask anyone we can't ask our young people to go yeah where can't we take been willing to. Or we have not been yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so just as a final question i'd love to ask you therefore on that basis a little bit more about some of those personal rhythms that you have put in place in your life in terms of your relationship to social media and your phone you've already mentioned that once a year uh, you take three weeks totally away from your phone with your phone off you've already mentioned the the text message bundling thing but what else what are the other things uh, in your life that you've that you've put in place as practices as non-negotiables that have helped you in your relationship to social media and to, and to your phone yeah yeah okay so i have a And I recommend that every just human being and definitely every follower of Jesus um, come up with their own. I've done some teaching on it in the past. You can find it on our website. I've done an entire teaching where I give some examples of a digital rule of life and different ones. And and with a digital rule of life, unlike a kind of rule of life as a whole, it can be as simple as writing up a list of rules, you know, which isn't what a rule of life necessarily is. But on a digital rule of life, it can be. So I have one and we have kind of, you know, TechWise Family by Andy Crouch has some good examples of this. If you want a short little read on it to kind of intro you to that idea. And so just basically, you know, we picked a bunch of his, you know, and then we added a bunch of our own. So it's things like, you know, no phone at the dinner table and, you know what I mean? Like all all sorts of things like that. Um, No devices in kids' rooms and, you know, things like that. But the two, let me just give you two that are like the anchor practices for me that are the most informative, even before text message 
defundling or limiting time on Instagram or all that kind of stuff. The two that are most important for me are just um, uh, what Andy Crouch calls parenting your phone. So if you're a parent with little kids, uh, at least if you're a wise parent, most likely your kids go to bed before you go to bed and they get up after you get up. You know, My so kids they, don't always get up after don't, they get up. It, don't they, always, they, yes. They that second one is a little bit more in question. Yeah. Depends on how late you stay up as a parent, you know, whether or not you're digitally addicted to Netflix. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, let's say your kids might go to bed at 7.30 and you might go to bed at 9.30. That gives you two hours at the end of the day to kind of unwind. If you're, you know, you have a spouse to kind of connect at an emotional level and you know whatever read pray just kind of be you know breathe and then let's say you know they get up at seven in the morning you might get up at six to have time with jesus and scripture and prayer and just to kind of breathe and you know because as an adult you need less sleep than a child so in the same way parenting your phone is just that exact same principle applied to your phone and the internet so like in my house uh phones go to bed or my phone at least goes to bed at 8 30 p.m meaning it goes on a charger in another room plugged and put away and then i don't pull mine out most days till 11 a.m when i do my text message but now i have a weird job where my job requires me to do hours every day of kind of deep work where i'm away from the internet and away from my phone so other people you know couldn't do that they'd have to at least have it on by the time they're at the office at 8 a.m or whatever but for me i'll do a couple hours each morning of kind of deep work creative readings study sermon writing planning vision stuff before i'll even look at my phone so every single day from if when i'm in my disciplines and again i'm not always in my disciplines but when i'm living in my rule of life from 8 30 p.m to 11 a.m my phone is off or if i need it it's just a quick checkup for something you know so you could do a much it can be a much more mild version of that all the neuroscientists argue you should have an hour and a half before bed with no screen minimum of 30 minutes 90 minutes is what is recommended so this is a second doctor would tell you to do this. You don't have to be like a, a pastor, you know? So um, just for sleep and sleep cycles and chronic exhaustion is such a major problem. Neuroscientists talk about neurogenesis, meaning, which is, and I don't understand all of the science here, but as you sleep, it's an incredibly important time for your brain. Your brain is, as I understand it, is like, is creating new neurons. Like it's, it's regenerating itself. And they say that the two most important parts um, of your day for brain development or what is in your brain right before you go to sleep and right when you wake up. And so what happens to an entire generation when the last thing they see every night is basically soft porn and gratuitous violence on Netflix, and the first thing they see every morning is a tweet, a scary news article, a comparison thing on Instagram, a stressful email from their boss, a text message that's, you know, what kind of people are we becoming if that, and we're not sleeping enough, and that's, you know what I mean, how is this forming us and really really scary way. So I think one of the simplest things you can do is just set a bedtime for your phone. Don't use it as an alarm clock. Like I've asked my entire church, you know, invited them to go out and buy an old school analog alarm clock, put your phone in another room. And, you know, if you're freaked out about people not being able to get a hold of you, get a landline or leave the ringer on, whatever you need to do, put it in another room and sleep. And then in the morning, just don't look at it, touch it until you have at least spent a little 
quiet time in prayer and scripture. Even if that's just 10 minutes and you're a young parent and you can barely, okay, just get 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, whatever. It doesn't have to be four hours of contemplative prayer. Anything is good. Yeah. And then the second, this is so yeah. good. Like, uh, and this, this is the reason why at, at Limitless Festival a couple of months ago, we said to, to all the young people, we said, we set up a challenge and it was this. I, yeah, give it, yes. it was, I, I will spend time with God alone before I spend any time with my phone. Yes, yes, yes. I gave them. And uh, that's it. For all of the reasons that you said there, you know, I'd really encourage our youth pastors, children's pastors and teams who are watching this. Get your young people to build that rhythm in into their lives to, to start the day with Jesus rather than on Instagram and on their notifications. Oh, and yes. likewise, that that bedtime, that's just so I mean, I do that as well. I, I, I kind of go for an hour before bed where I'm off my phone and I just I can almost feel like, the, you know, I can just feel myself breathe in that hour, you know, where my phone's away. And I, I'd really encourage. I Yeah. What you said there is so good. I'd really encourage everyone to go for that. But this is great stuff. Keep going, please. No, I mean, that's it. You're, you said it better than I just did. That's it. hundred ten percent. Yeah. All I would say is the other anchor practice for me is Sabbath and I practice a digital Sabbath, you know, so, and again, lots of doctors, interesting. My wife has some chronic health issues, her lovely secular doctor. One of the things that she strongly recommended was a 24 hour time period every single week with zero devices because the screens are so bad for your nervous system. Wow. And there's more and more data about this. This This is nothing to do with her becoming a person who is like Jesus. This was just for her physical health. Health. The oh. doctor was saying you need to take a 24-hour break from even TV screens, everything, once a week. You know, so um, we we practice Sabbath each week, and part of our practice of Sabbath is a digital Sabbath where we take you know, our phone and um, every, everything, phone, iPad, computers, we don't have a TV, but everything is off for 24 hours. And it's so life-giving, you know, and so good. And like something happens, your nervous system, you disconnect and you start to feel and experience the world differently. And just knowing that, and again, it's ironic how many people that, well, I can't do that. Or, da, 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 I have to do, you know, what if it's an emergency? Da, da, da. And again, I mean, now it's so cheap to get a landline phone. It's like 20 bucks a month or something like like that you can have a phone if you really feel like you need to be you know able to get a hold people need to get a hold of you for an emergency um great then you there are other ways around that you know but i think for us those two practices of a whole day a week where the phone everything is off and then kind of that end of the day beginning of the day where you're quiet and device free and just able to be with each other and with God and with your own soul and your own body. Those two very simple practices for me are like kind of the anchor points. Uh, John, that's, that's so good. And, and, and we will finish there, not just because we're out of time and we could keep going, but because I would just love that to be a takeaway for our children's leaders and teams, youth leaders and teams, to put those things into practice in your own lives, but yes. also to help our children and young people to, to, to build those things in their lives as non-negotiables from an early age. I, I think that we would be doing great children's and youth ministry if we could help our children and young people to do that. Yes. John Mark, thank you so much. It's been challenging. It, it, it's, it's been inspiring. I, 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 I said it at the start, and I know you probably wouldn't want me to, but I really believe that yours is a, is a prophetic voice on, on this stuff in, in our age because uh, the voice of the prophet is usually one which is against the flow and it speaks a counterculture, and, and you're really doing that in a way that's so helpful and so life-giving. So thank you for that. Um, it's an honor. 
Well, I'm sure you'll agree that was a stimulating and challenging conversation with John Mark. So much for us to reflect on, so much for us to apply in our youth ministries as well. So thank you so much for tuning into the Limitless Leadership Podcast today. If this has been a helpful conversation with you, then I'd really encourage you to share it with a, another leader uh, via your socials or uh, by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget, Limitless Leaders, 26th, 27th January, another opportunity for us to learn together, to grow as leaders in youth and children's ministry. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can uh, listen to future episodes like this one. And finally, let me finish by saying thank you for all that you're doing to invest in the lives of young people where you are. I cannot think of anything more important that you could give your life to than passing on the gospel to the next generation. It's so important. You're doing something truly significant. You're a hero to me for what you do, for how you spend your life on behalf of young people. So let's keep going. As we approach Christmas, I pray that you manage to get a little bit of time off in a busy season in church life to remind yourself of why we do this thing. We give ourselves for young people because Jesus first gave himself to us. See you next time on the Limitless Leadership Podcast.